He sat in defiance of municipal orders, astride the gun Zamzamar on her brick platform opposite the old Ajib Gear, the Wonder House, as the natives call the Lahore Museum. Who holds Zamzamar? That fire-breathing dragon hold the Punjab, for the great green bronze piece is always the first of the conqueror's loot. There was some justification for Kim. He had kicked Lala Dinanath's boy off the Trunyans, since the English held the Punjab, and Kim was English. Though he was burned black as any native, though he spoke the vernacular by preference, and his mother tongue in a clipped, uncertain sing-song, though he consorted on terms of perfect equality with the small boys of the bazaar, Kim was white. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And on this episode, we're talking about literature and empire, an interview with Professor Gori Viswanathan. So in recent history, we've seen people challenging what we've initially always thought of as value neutral. So, for example, when we look at the likes of national heroes or the history that's displayed in a national museum, we realize now that this doesn't all just come from a vacuum. It isn't as is. In fact, there's an intention of bringing these national heroes to the fore or narrating history in a certain way. And We've seen this now as well with curriculums, and in particular, the way that English literature has been taught. And what I found really striking when we were thinking about this was that, say, when you're looking at English literature courses at UK universities, the canon starts with works like Beowulf, written before the 10th century, and, say, in British high schools, you're looking at works by Shakespeare that were written in the 17th century. And... You'd think that the scholarship on these works would have existed alongside them in the same periods that they were written. But even though, say, Shakespeare was written 400 years ago, it actually was only 200 years ago that the the subject of English literature as a concept came to be created. And it wasn't just that it was created in the 19th century, but it wasn't even created in England. It was actually created in colonial India. And it was when we read Masks of Conquest by Professor Gauri Vishwanathan that we learned about the intentions the British had when teaching English literature to their colonial subjects in India at the turn of the 19th century. And of course, British involvement in India started well before then with the East India Company trading, you know, the likes of cotton, silk and opium. And throughout the years and through many battles, they started seizing more land within India. And they went from a company to really becoming the military authority in growing sections of India as well. And the first of these regions to come under the control of the East India Company was Bengal. And soon after that happened, the British Parliament passed the first of what became the India Acts, which, starting in 1784, came to put parts of India under the indirect control of the British government. And following on from 1784, there were more wars and more treaties and more annexation. That meant that most of India came to be under the subjugation of the British and controlled by a network of British governors. 
And the turning point really came in the middle of the 19th century when a local rebellion by an army of sepoys escalated into what became known as the Rebellion of 1857. And this took six months to suppress. And while both the British and Indian sides lost a lot of lives, it was the Indian side that lost hundreds of thousands. And as a result of this, the British government had enough of the East India Company having such power in India. And so in 1858, there was this general shakeup of the Indian administration, and the British Indian territories were transformed into a colony of the British crown. And going back to the discussion of education and English literature being used as a tool for the colonial agenda in India, the English took it upon themselves to try to educate their subjects in India. And this intention came from a place of total condescension where they didn't see their Indian subjects as being morally fit or intellectually fit enough to be functioning in this realm of knowledge that the English were seeing themselves as, as holding. And so in 1813, before the English had formally colonized India, they passed a Charter Act, which made education in India their responsibility. And what's striking is that the condescension that led to this act was so strong as a result of the British imperial mindset that there wasn't even something similar back in England that made the government responsible for the education of, of its people there. And well, education in colonial India came to perform this function as if it was a kind of social institution, whereas it would be the church, for example, in England that would be promoting and disseminating values and tradition and a kind of social authority. The English replaced those functions with education. And that's what we'll be talking about in this episode. So we're here to speak with Gauri Vishwanathan, professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and author of the book that inspired us to do this episode, Masks of Conquest. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us on this episode. So when we think of the canon of British literature or of the canon of literature of any country, we kind of take it for granted that those particular authors or poets or playwrights were destined to be part of that distinguished group of individuals that are said to represent the best of what that country has to offer culturally. Could you share with us how the construction of those bodies of literature have actually reproduced the power dynamics that existed in the periods when those canons were put together? Um, I mean, it's a, it's a great question to begin with, and um, uh, I, I would have to say that the there isn't anything inherently, um, you know, power-driven about the nature of literary texts. It's really the way that we put them together to serve, um, you know, the purposes that we have already predetermined that they should serve, that, you know, brings up the question of the power dynamics of works. I mean, I would like to begin by going back to Matthew Arnold, uh, the 19th century uh, cultural critic, who in his, I think like the you know, kind of seminal work, Culture and Anarchy, where he extolled the power of, quote, the best that has been thought and, and known as the rationale for literary instruction, that is the means by which culture would lead to uh, human uh, betterment. And this idea of, you know, what has 
you know, the best that has been thought and known has been assumed to be, you know, a, a definition of what literature is, you know, that it represents the exalted thoughts of human minds. Um, and that literature becomes the means by which groups of people can be lifted to, um, you know, self self uh, improvement, to moral betterment, to rational perception. Um, but I think at the same time, it would have to be said that Matthew Arnold's humanistic language could not adequately shield um, the class power that he associated with the best that has been thought and known. Um, I mean, after all, uh, and he re often referred to the people who are endowed by culture and those who are not endowed by culture. And that latter group is what he often referred to as the barbarians. I mean, this is his word, you know, barbarians, by which he meant the plebeian uh, classes who were often deficient, as he put it, from the capacity to think the best that has been thought and known. So, you know, this, this distinction that has been like the bedrock of how literature has been thought that um, there's literature, which is part of what is, you know, the educational fair that is offered to people as they become part of the process of schooling on the one hand and popular tastes, which we get from popular culture like cinema or now for us the internet social media you know that there's this divide between the popular and the elite and um you know matthew arnold i think in some ways had uh, uh was the master privileger um of uh, elite power which he associated with um uh, culture so canons have power according to the times in which they are um, implemented. And the real question would be, you know, how, to what extent are popular tastes now the site from which elite power is dismantled? You know, so that, you know, popular tastes become a means of democratic dissemination of interests that are not just exclusively identified with canons, but that the canons themselves are exposed as the kind of contained receptacles of people in power, uh, which they use in order to distinguish themselves and their power from the power of the democratic um, public. I also did want to say something about the predominance of white males, you know, a patriarchal society in a literary curriculum, because that has actually been obviously one of the great um, sites of contestation, you know, the hold of white males. Uh, and I think even continuing today, you know, the predominance of male uh, white authors in a literary curriculum has been, you know, the source of resistance by feminists, by minority groups, by re religious groups, because by white male culture, we're also talking about a kind of predominantly uh, white Christian culture. And I know this touches on something that interests you later on, but, you know, it is really important to see the ways in which, you know, the, the canon becomes an expression of white male, and one would also have to say Christian culture of a certain time and a certain place. And so with these systems of power that exist within these bodies of literature, when we come to the context of colonial India, in your book, you show that the British used English literary education as a tool for the political and social control of its colonial subjects. 
But what was it about English studies that made it more useful than other disciplines for the British colonial agenda? I mean, this really goes to the heart of uh, what I was attempting to do in my book, Massive Conquest. And it, it is counterintuitive when you think about it, that if the British had reached a position of ascendancy of political power in uh, the colonies, and my example is of India, but you know, one could look at the situation in other places, in, in Egypt, in Southeast Asia, uh, and there has been a lot of scholarship since then that, uh, since Massive Congress, which, you know, supports this argument about how, um, you know, British ruling power uh, was augmented by the implementation of uh, English education. But it's not just English education, uh, which means education in the language of English. It also includes uh, instruction in English literature. And your question really goes to the heart of why English literature rather than say, for instance, science. You know, if the whole point is that colonial subjects are deficient in powers of reason, powers of empirical thinking, the capacity to discriminate between fact and fiction of a, a reality and you know, what you want to make up as, as reality, then you, know, you would think that disciplines like science, maybe discipline like history you know, with its own um, attention on historical detail, on uh, documentation, of, of the past on basically a reliance on documents uh, in the case of history and in the case of science, document uh, reliance on verification, scientific experimentation, proof, etc. So you would think those disciplines would really take pride of place. So it is kind of counterintuitive to see the um, heightened role of English literature. And I think one of the reasons really goes back to um, a principle a critique that one can see in uh, the colonial discussions, the administrative discussions about, you know, if, they're, if they needed to rely on what they kept referring to as honest, reliable, trustworthy subjects who would have to be hired as, you know, kind of lower division clerks in the offices. And after all, you know, you think about the numbers, the numbers of colonial people were much smaller than the numbers of you know, colonial subjects. You needed to have to bring some of them into the administration to occupy the uh, lower orders. But, you, but this need for having people who understood what it meant to be trustworthy, loyal, kind of values driven. And this goal took on a lot of um, importance for the British. And, you know, science is great, history is great, but, you know, where do you go for the inculcation of moral uh, values, um, especially in light of the fact, and this is really important, that the, um, the British administration, which was you know, built initially in the, um, in the Indian colony, at least, on the uh, work of the economic enterprise of the East India Company, I mean, it was a trading mission. And um, the trading missions depended on the ability to traffic with uh, native subjects in such a way that they would you know, be willing to engage in, in commerce. But the one no-no uh, was uh, religious proselytization. You know, Hindus and Muslims were extremely wary 
of proselytization of any kind, which is one reason why Christian missionaries were not allowed to operate in, in India. And, and until 1813, they were really kind of banned from um, the colonies. And the reason was that the British were very fearful that they would not be able to get the cooperation of their subjects if they at any time felt that their religions were being attacked or uh, threatened. So, you know, Christian missionaries were kept um, at, at bay, but it did raise the question about going back to what I said of trustworthiness, that if you are going to draw in um, a pool of people who would have to be hired to fill these lower um, level uh, positions, and you needed them to be people who could, you know, who had an idea of you know, trustworthiness, moral values. Um, where do you go when religious instruction is not permitted? And this is where, you know, English literature be, became like a brilliant solution for uh, the, the colo uh, colonialists who saw in English literature uh, an instrument for the dissemination of values and morality, which they deemed imperative to um, uh, inculcate in uh, Indian subjects. So English literature became the surrogate for the um, inculcation of values that could not be introduced through the Bible. The Bible was a text that could not be taught. But what do you find, what, what was there that could be like an uh, extension of the Bible without being the Bible. And that was um, in the col British colonialist viewpoint, the literature of, of England. Now, there, there might seem to be several contradictory arguments in this position um, because, you know, one, you know, to, to read literature effectively to pull out its moral arguments, you know, you might say that, you know, how do you read for morality when you yourself are deemed to be insufficient in moral capabilities. If English literature is supposed to be this great fountainhead of, of morality, how do you read for it if you yourself are not able to, um, to see it? And this is what is the paradox, that English literature was seen as the very means by which the enhancement of sensibilities and intellectual faculties could be achieved. In other words, that English literature came to be seen as both a method and an object of moral and intellectual um, study, that instruction in Western aesthetic principles would be the means of elevating the Indian um, character. Uh, and one, the way that that was done was by instilling habits of comparison and comparative study, whereby pre-existing tastes and extravagance and what was referred to as barbarous splendor would be supplanted by um, tastes resulting in higher sensibilities. And this is where I would like to go back to what I said about Matthew Arnold, you know, when Arnold talked about, you know, the elevated sensibilities, which he associated with the upper classes and the uh, barbarous sensibilities that he associated with the barbarians or the plebeians, you know, something similar was going on in the way that the British were talking about uh, the Indian. By the way, I should add that this is something that I found fascinating when I read the educational documents, both in England and in India together. You know, when I put them together, it was really striking to see the ways in which the British were talking about the Indians 
in the way that the upper classes were talking about the plebeian or the lower classes in England, that the lower classes in England were be, more or less being put in the same position as the Indian subjects, that you know their sensibilities were debased. The only way that they could be lifted from the uh, negativity of popular literature and you know their popular taste was through this higher means of culture in England and in India through English literature, which by the way, was not a subject in the schools in uh, England at the time that it was being introduced in India. So that in a nutshell, English literature was actually being taught earlier in India than it was in, uh, in England. So, you know, you do have this interesting, um, you know, set of you know, revelations that emerge when you put the English context alongside the colonial Indian context. And so, Professor, how did people in colonial India try to resist these value systems that the British were trying to impose? Now, I, I think this is a really, really interesting question because, you know, um, you know, the word resist might automatically suggest the word reject, you know, that rejection is one way of, of resisting. And, you know, you think of, um, for instance, the African writer Gugi, you know, who has very memorably uh, suggested that um, the only way that the colonial legacy can be permanently discarded uh, is by rejecting uh, the language of colonialism. In many countries of Africa, in, in India, in South Asia, the language is, is, is English. In other colonies, the language is French. In uh, some other colonies, it's uh, Spanish and others German. So the, the African writer Gugi's you know, solution for dealing with colonial legacy is by rejecting the English language and by turning to indigenous languages as the only way in which one can return to um, a point before colonialism. But you know, there have been other ways that have been proposed and rejection is not necessarily the first response or the first form of resistance, but it might take the form of adaptation or rewriting the legacy of, uh, of English language and English um, literature uh, in order to facilitate you know, um, the path to autonomy and, and freedom. Now, I want to be clear that I am not suggesting that Indian independence was reliant on the values of Western civilization. And this is actually a common thread that you see in you know, an imperial version of British historiography written after decolonization, where you would say, well, you know, the colonized peoples were able to achieve independence by learning the lessons of Western civilization, which is about freedom, democracy, um, autonomy, you know, that these are the lessons that are a part of the legacy of uh, Western civilization. So if decolonized people are free, it's all thanks to us that we brought in the values that they incorporated that allowed them to um, fight for um, independence. And that's really not what I'm suggesting. And there's clearly you know, a lot of resistance. I mean, this is where the word resistance is really useful, that you know, there's resistance to this idea of reading uh, the beneficial impact of uh, English education as 
uh, resulting in those very values of personal self-determination, of free will, of the quest for autonomy, all of which then become the driving force of independence uh, movements. But this, I, I think there's something much more uh, to, to be said in, in favor of those values. And I think it goes to, it, it goes back to the very idea that the question is, what is, you know, what is English education doing for colonized subjects that are enabling them to reconnect with what they see as perhaps what they have lost in their own cultures, you know, the alienation that was forced on them by adopting a, a, a foreign language, a new language, rejecting their own customs, habits, practices, even religions in the name of um, English education. Um, so, you know, what are the means by which colonized subjects are able to reconnect with what they have lost? through English education. And this is where I think, you know, this notion of adaptation, of, of rewriting is really important that the, uh, I think you can see that in a lot of great writing today, um, uh, the rewriting of, you know, classics of English literature. Um, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, who I'm sure many people have read at some point in their, in their lives, either in school or in college, or even as just in, uh, independent reading. Uh, Jane Eyre is like, you know, this anchor of, uh, of English um, literature. And I think many people, uh, many of your hearers are familiar with the story of, uh, you know, an orphaned uh, governess who ends up, you know, falling in love with her, uh, you know, the person who's basically her employer, who it turns out his wife is still living. And his wife is a Creole from the West Indies. So the, you know, the colonies is always there. They're always there in the background of Jane Eyre. This is what Edward Said so famously talked about in his book, Culture and uh, Imperialism, that you know, the great um, works of English literature, you just have to scratch the surface and you see you know, the imperial context is right there. And that's what people are more or less taught not to recognize as like an important uh, foregrounded um, uh, aspect of a work. But in this novel, this is really important that the wife still existing is now called the mad woman in the attic. You know, she's locked up in the attic. And uh, Jean Rees, you know, a Caribbean writer wrote the novel White Sargasso Sea, which is a rewriting of Jane Eyre, but from the viewpoint of the uh, Bertha Mason, the wife, the mad, the so-called mad woman in the attic. This is what I mean by rewriting, you know, rewriting of the novels of, you know, English literature, which are part of the great classical canon, but that the rewritings from formerly colonized um, spaces of the empire, that these novels then are begin are exposing the cracks in these works, which are supposed to be set in the landed estates of Britain, but even the reliance of these landed estates on colonial labor. Another, you know, Said had this wonderful essay, uh, it's a chapter in his book, in Culture and Imperialism on Jane Austen's book, Mansfield Park. And there too, you know, it's about, uh, you know, the, uh, the plantations, you know, the landowner visits his plantations in the West Indies. But, you know, that's not something that readers are supposed to focus on. 
but it's the connection between the metropole and the colony that really drives so many of these novels. So the rewritings become means of resistance to the canonical readings. Another novel that I would point to as a rewriting, which some of you might be familiar with, is, um, uh, you know, of course, Joseph Conrad wrote the great novel, Heart of Darkness. But Tayyip Sali, you know, the uh, Sudanese writer, I mean, wrote Season of Migration to the North as a direct response to, to that novel. Again, taking the position not of the, and this has been, of course, an important critique of, um, of Conrad, that even when he is trying to introduce a more complicated reading of empire, it always turns into the angst of the uh, white um, overlord. You know, it's never about the effect of the policies that are taken by the white overlord on subjugated people, but it's about, oh, you know, the person who's suffering through uh, pangs of conscience. So again, it's about, you know, the, the protagonist is always the white male, usually the white male. And, um, you know, the, the impact of all these policies and decisions, you know, we never see the results of that. And speaking of Heart of Darkness, um, Chinua Achebe, you know, had this, wrote this seminal essay, and his bottom line argument is that Joseph Conrad is a racist author. That is what he actually says. I, I, I'm quoting from the essay. And the reason why he says that is precisely for the reason that I indicated, that even when there is a an attempt to try to get at some of the complications of uh, colonialism, it's never from the viewpoint of the, um, you know, the people who are impacted by it. But it's generally from the viewpoint, of, you know, the angst of the, the protagonist, the white male protagonist. So this is why I think this question of resistance is, it's an, it's an important one. And it takes these very subtle forms where resistance is just as much about adaptation and rewriting as it is about rejection. Even in the history, because I'm very much interested in the historical progressions in you know, the colonial implementation of English literature. And one of the things that I found very interesting is that even though, as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, that the British were very keen on inculcating moral values and introducing a humanistic education in, in India, actually by the third quarter of the 19th century, they were becoming a bit alarmed by what they saw as the unintended consequences of English education, which began to look more subversive than um, controlling. So when you ask the question about how colonial Indians resisted British value systems, it was often by deploying the ideas that they adapted from English education. And one of the criticisms of the British was that, you know, the English, uh, sorry, the Indians are becoming too uppity they're becoming too full of themselves, thinking that they have a right now to, to think for themselves. Because as I said, the whole point of English education was to prepare them for those lower level jobs that, that the British wanted for them. But the Indians, when they started um, not just speaking English at a level that equaled, if not surpassed, the Englishmen, we're, all, we're now beginning to say, you know, I don't want those lower level jobs. I can aspire to something much bigger than that. Why shouldn't I 
go for positions that would um, equal the position of uh, the English um, administrator. So by the 1870s, the English were actually kind of pushing back against English education for uh, humanistic purposes. And they were in fact calling for uh, what they kept referring to as practical or vocational training. And, and the intent was to keep Indians within the social class into which they were born. That was their primary goal, to keep Indians focused on the social ca uh, class. And by the way, this understanding of, of class and caste, which is now um, very much in uh, public discussion, you know, with Isabel Wilkerson's book on caste, that, you know, that the whole goal of a lot of this class thinking is to keep people ensconced in the class, or perhaps a better word to use, is the caste in which they were born, you know, not allow them to aspire to something higher than that. So, you know, this idea of resistance was already being waged at the level of uh, what I would call subversive readings of uh, English literature. Professor, in Masks of Conquest, you also talk about how British education was intimately linked with Christian thought, both in that much of the content of these curriculums understood Christianity as an important precursor to secular ideas, and that much of educational work in the British Empire was done by missionaries. As such, do you think that the secularism embedded in Western education can ever be seen as value neutral? Or do you think that it always has to be understood in connection to a Christian foundation? Yeah, this is such a good question and such an important question. And for the last few years, I have been very interested in theories of secularism and really does go back to some of that early research that I had done on um, English education. I mean, I had already spoken about how English literature be, uh, was more or less used as a surrogate for um, Christian instruction. Uh, and I laid the context for why Christianity could not be directly taught, that the Bible could not be taught in schools because the British were very fearful that Hindus and Muslims would be offended by tampering with their religious um, sensibilities. But I think this word that you used about value neutral, it may perhaps the presumption of being value neutral was always part of the appeal of English literature. So that at least the presentation of observing religious neutrality could be maintained. But that word neutral was always problematic in that English literature was not a moral vacuum, but it was a, seen as a crucible of Western moral and religious values. So this speaks directly to your question that in that sense, yes, the secularism in Western education has to be understood in relation to a Christian foundation. That's unavoidable. It's part of the history in which English literature was taught in uh, the colonies. And that there was always this implicit understanding that Western secularism um, had this Christian uh, foundation. So that ideas of moral responsibility in this life, the acceptance of the role of personal will in shaping history uh, would be seen as um, you know, part of 
the legacy of um, secularism. And I think this question goes, you know, well beyond uh, a discussion of English literature, which is one reason why I feel that when we have conferences about secularism and we um, talk about theories of, of, of secularism, I do consider it important to go back to the colonial context for understanding how to think about um, secularism. Uh, I have long maintained that we, we have to stop seeing curriculum or canons as simply being receptacles or containers of texts. You know, that's how we think about a curriculum, that it holds texts. You know, curriculum is like a box and you throw any number of texts into a box that you want and say that that's your curriculum. I see curricula canons and curricula as actually activities, you know, as, as, you know, means by which we achieve certain ends. And, um, you know, secularism, I see as much of an activity as, um, you know, the, the English curriculum, you know, that uh, secularism emerged in, in particular context from, and, you know, con and the, the shape of the appearance will obviously differ depending on the context that you are um, uh, looking at. But I think it is really important when we talk about secularism to, you know, to highlight the ways in which uh, its implementation as a policy, you know, at a kind of a grand level, uh, you know, where uh, divisions between public and private are clearly marked out that, um, you know, religion is um, more, uh, more clearly associated with the private uh, rather than with the public. Um, but, you know, how and when did that emerge? You know, um, to what extent can we say that secularism is value neutral? Going back to your uh, question. And my response would really be that, uh, you know, what we would really need to examine is the arc between the value-laden state of, of secularism resting on a Christian foundation towards that positionality where it would be seen as value neutral. So the arc will vary depending on the uh, cultural context that we're looking at. But I think it is really hard to say that, you know, secularism can be seen as value neutral in and of itself, that it would have to be related to the particular historical circumstances of its emergence. And Professor, so now that we recognize the colonial origins of English studies, how do we as, as readers and as students and as educational institutions, how do we move forward to reshape the subject on new terms? Yeah, you know, I, I, I like to quote T.S. Eliot, who wrote, after such knowledge, what forgiveness, because the, the knowledge that has been excised from histories of English studies is the embeddedness of English studies in colonialism. So to just proceed blindly, ignoring the colonial context is really um, to ask, you know, what forgiveness, you know, um, how legitimate, um, you know, what legitimacy can we claim as scholars if we continue to disregard what we know is very uh, important part of the shaping of English studies. You know, so I think one notion that we would need to understand by 
um, acknowledging the colonial origins of English studies is that we cannot just continue to say that English literary studies is apolitical. I mean, this is the humanist line. You know, humanism takes as one of its principles that there is an appeal to these higher qualities of reason and thought and sensibility that you know has, has nothing to do with politics. It's 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 apolitical. Um, but when we look at the history of English studies in different um, places, you know, we you know it's it becomes very obvious that um, you know the evolution of the field is by no means apolitical. And we simply cannot ascribe innocence to the implementation of literary curricula on the basis of you know, aesthetic merit alone or philosophical merit alone or um, what have you. So I want to reiterate that you know, I, I, I just don't see the curriculum as a receptacle of text that it has to be understood as activity and that the curriculum is a vehicle of acquiring and exercising power. I mean, this goes back to your very first question about construction of bodies of text, you know, and what are the power dynamics in those, uh, in, in those constructions. That is really what we would need to look at, you know, that, you know, every act of uh, curriculum building or canon formation, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, we are acknowledging one thing and then excluding something else. Now, of course, one would say it's impossible to include everything, you know, how can we possibly do that? All we, all we can do is have a selection of, of, of works in a curriculum. Now, one way of getting around that is by saying, why not put texts into conversation with each other? So that, you know, some of the, um, you know, reservations that we might have about simply continuing in perpetuity the white patriarchal male canon. Uh, one way of kind of diminishing that hold is by putting those texts in conversation with texts written by women, by minorities, by you know non-Christians, or by people who don't occupy the center space in the canonical work. So one way of doing that is by putting these works into conversation uh, with each other, so that you know we can perhaps reshape English studies to reflect these multiple voices. Of course, we can, we still won't be able to include everything, you know, but the notion is to try to get the canonical works in conversation with, you know, works written from, uh, written by non-males, non-whites, um, non-Christians, as a way of trying to um, understand, you know, that the viewpoint from the top of the hill is not going to be the viewpoint from the bottom of the hill. And some of the most interesting conversations can happen when you see that. And of course, we see a lot of this kind of rethinking in terms of uh, reconstruction of curricula through Black Lives. This has become now a central feature of American universities, you know, how to talk about uh, racial justice through exactly this kind of addressing of the limitations of the white uh, male canon. Going back to what I was saying about recognition of the political stakes in canon formation, maybe, you know, if we are able to start thinking about disengaging um, literature from humanism, there is a tendency also to, to say, well, then literature can then become simply symptomatic 
of uh, sociology. Everything becomes about identity politics. So where's the pleasure in reading literature? If, you know, when we're trying to, um, you know, cast a spotlight on how literature has been used for political ends, then do we simply end up reducing literature to something that we can no longer love? Now, you know, I have to again go back to Edward Said, you know, I mean, Edward Said, the chapter, the title of one of his uh, chapters in uh, culture and imperialism was the pleasures of imperialism. And he had a reading of Rudyard Kipling's Kim. And, you know, I mean, Said, even by some of his devoted followers, couldn't really quite understand why he seemed to love the very literature, which he claimed was so steeped in these murky political uh, purposes. And I think it does raise a lot of questions about, you know, can we salvage aesthetic pleasure if the very literature that we are reading is so kind of, you know, steeped in the negativity of misrepresentation, of distortion, of racism, you know, like Achebe said of um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Can we read any of these works again if we find them so despicable in their, in their representations? So, you know, what's the purpose in keeping these uh, works in our syllabus? Now, one argument might be to say that we need to keep these works just so that we know the level of misrepresentation that has existed, you know, that, you know, maybe from that we can use readings of these works as, you know, as teaching points for talking about, you know, the pain of the enslaved or the suffering of the oppressed. Um, that can we read these works to find the points at which the, you know, the, the literary work can be reclaimed um, as one. And I also have to, you know, I find this such an, an important part of the role of imagination. Do we read literature just for the sake of social knowledge? Or do we read literature to trigger our imaginative uh, capabilities? And how do we do that? You know, I mean, do we find in the imagination the power to uh, reclaim our lives? And uh, I mean, I'm, I always think about the just as a, as an example, um, you know, words, you know, the daffodil. You know, anyone who's gone through a colonial education will know that you know, in uh, you read works like uh, Wordsworth's "The Daffodil," the poem, "The Daffodils," and you know, it's an interesting poem to read in a place like India or the West Indies or Africa, where you know you don't really see daffodils. And yet you grow up reading these literary texts and sort of knowing or being made to know or being made to feel that um, you know, daffodils are part of your, your mental um, horizon. And you know, going back again to rewritings, you know, Jamaica Kincaid, the West Indian writer has a novel called Lucy. And she, it's so steeped in English literature because, you know, one of the, you know, the turning point of that novel is when she encounters daffodils in, in America. And then at that point, she enters into this kind of dissociation that she always had an idea of daffodils as a construct, as a mental construct, never as a physical reality. And when she in, confronts that physical reality, there's this kind of 
you know, co collision with the mental construct that is producing something very new in her understanding, you know, of, uh, of things. And this is the point at which the imagination begins to take over that, you know, the imagination is such an important mental faculty for, you know, understanding who we are. And, and I think these kinds of events that the novel Lucy managed to do, which is to, to talk about, you know, how the, this kind of alienation that we experience then becomes a way of trying to understand aspects of ourselves that we had to suppress as a result of being indoctrinated into another language and into another uh, literature. So your original question about uh, how do we move forward to reshape English studies on new terms? It goes back to first, you know, the primacy of imagination, um, but also the primacy of a kind of not just imagination, but a moral imagination that is now reconnecting with aspects of self that have been forced to hibernate because that other self has not been allowed to claim legitimacy in light of you know, how you're supposed to be culturated, you're supposed to think in a certain way, read in a certain way, speak in a certain way. So how do you resuscitate that um, hibernated self? And, um, and I think this is where moral imagination comes into play, you know, where the self is kind of put in a position where it must reconnect with aspects of that subjugated self. Uh, and, and reclaim it as equally legitimate in the present. Thank you so much, Professor, for this incredible interview, looking at a subject which, given that it's part of our core curriculums in schools, we probably don't look at critically enough. But now that we are beginning to have conversations about this, we realize that it's not just about looking critically at the authors that are included in the curriculum, but also about acknowledging the origins of the subject in the first place. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.